0: Welcome to the Hey Salespeople podcast, where we focus on delivering immediately actionable best practices for sales professionals. I'm your host, Jeremy Donovan from SalesLoft. Hey, salespeople, today it is my great pleasure to welcome Kelly Campbell to the show. Welcome, Kelly. Hey. Kelly is a legal technology account executive at LexisNexis. I'm sure it's impossible to not know who LexisNexis is, but just in case you've been living under a rock, they are uh, the leading global provider of business information and analytics to the legal and risk professions. Uh, we are not going to talk about the legal and risk professions. We're going to talk about what it means to be a great salesperson. I'll tell you why in a second. But before I do that, I want to introduce a brand new co-host of mine, Rina Ambai. Welcome, Rina.
1: Awesome. Thank you, Jeremy. Thanks for having me.
0: Rena, uh, you haven't heard from her on the show before, but she's one of my favorite fellow sales loft folks because she's super knowledgeable and uh, ends up training the vast majority of our people since she's one of the leaders of our of our sales enablement team. So we are talking to Kelly today because I've been asking around sales leaders CROs who their top account executives are, and I was pointed in Kelly's direction and she has their equivalent of President's Club or Winner's Circle, the Circle of Excellence there at LexisNexis, basically every year she's been there. So we're going to talk to her about what it means to be a great accounting executive. Before we do that, I always give guests a choice of what question they want to be asked at the beginning. And when I said, what was the first thing you sold as a kid? She's like, nope, stop. That's it right there. We're going to start with that one. So Kelly, what is, what is the first thing you remember selling when you were a kid?
2: So the thing that I probably look back at when I reflect at where did I truly get my start in sales you know, I did the fundraisers in elementary school sitting in, like chocolate bars and things like that. But where I can really pinpoint how I should have known I had a future in sales was when I was in high school, I was playing volleyball for a club traveling volleyball team. And my dad, you know, was like, hey, if you want to do this, you're paying for it yourself. So when they put some fundraisers in our view, I ran after it hard. What they gave to us to sell was oranges and grapefruits. The coaches would drive down to Florida. It's actually pretty cool. It was unique. I had a unique product to sell, which helped. But they would drive down to Florida and bring a whole U-Haul full of oranges and grapefruits back from there. And then our job was basically to collect pre-orders of boxes of oranges and grapefruits to sell to people. Literally every day after school, just hitting the pavement, going door to door to my neighbors and to the neighborhoods over and over and over. It was every night. And what I probably look back at being, you know, most proud of in that moment was the creativity that I took to my pitch or to actually handling objections, because how many people really want a whole carton, like a big crate of grapefruit? That's a lot of grapefruit to eat before it goes bad. So a lot of times the objection I'd get was, I don't know if I can eat that many grapefruits. Well, do you think that you would be able to handle half of a box? Then they'd say, yeah, I probably could do that. And I said, well, why don't we put you down for half? I'm sure we can find someone else that'll cover the other half of it. So I ended up selling a lot of half boxes. And I knew that at the end of it, even if I couldn't resell that other half, I would only be stuck paying for half of a box that was left over that my family would eat. Looking back as I started to interview you know, with sales companies and didn't have a whole lot to put on my resume, that was one of my favorite stories to be able to tell.
0: Rena, did you ever do the door-to-door thing?
1: I did a little bit. My first sales job was selling Sally Foster wrapping paper. I will say probably the biggest uh, life lesson I learned was the power of resellers because I got my parents involved and my sister involved and had them sell on my behalf to where they worked.
0: That's awesome! I love that. I did not know that story. Like, let's let's transition into the into the kind of the core of the, of the matter here, which is uh, I'm after trying to understand how is it that people end up being Presidents Club winner circle you know even once let alone year after year but be- before we I ask you about you I- I'd love to hear how you got here so either you know at Lexus Nexus or your prior employer I'm curious if there was you know anyone that you looked at as like this was the top seller and I'm going to try to fake it till I make it by cloning what they're doing
2: I mean, that has generally always been my approach. You know, you always hear that the best salespeople are great thieves. So no matter what I've done, I've just tried to find who's the best at what they do and then just soak in everything it is that they do and exactly the words they use and how they do it. My first person that I really got to emulate that with was a guy, Bob. He was actually my boss at the company I was at before I was at Lexus. So he was really pivotal in my early sales development. At really my first real job where I started to find success in sales, taught me just about everything that I know. Well, then he left and and went over to Lexus, and about a year or so later, I followed. We were on the same team, and so I lived in his cube. Everything that Bob did, I was there watching him, writing it down, practicing it to myself. You know, he was absolutely fundamental. You know, being able to get onboarded really quickly.
0: Is there any time when you felt broken down by Bob. And the reason I, I asked this is, you know I'm, I'm a huge fan of a book that I've mentioned on the show a few times called Radical Candor, and the best leaders are both care deeply and challenge directly. So sometimes when you get challenged directly, it's uncomfortable, it quote unquote breaks you down, not in a negative way, obviously, but, but it's sort of like the wake up call that I need to, if I wanna be successful, I have to do something different. Was there a moment ever where Bob was told you something that you were like, darn it, that's right. It hits at my core and it's something I I need to work on.
2: You know, honestly, I think he got me so early in my development that I didn't have enough pride to not listen to everything he said. Like I knew I had the potential to be great, but I wasn't great yet. And so I had nothing to come back and argue about with him. He told me to try something different. I would be a fool not to at least try it out, and when I tried it out, it always worked. So it was like he he had proof of concept right away with me. But I will say that there were sometimes, at least in my on the personal professional side, like my development as like, hey, I don't know if you want to be a leader at some point. That he gave me some hard feedback, and absolutely, it was it was all said in love, but it was some of the hardest feedback. That I've ever gotten. And I had to step away for a day before we could actually talk about it because I'm like, I'm not ready to hear that yet.
0: If you're comfortable disclosing, what was it that he said you need to change if you want to be a sales leader?
2: The feedback that I got was your teammates view you as arrogant. Whew, that was hard. And he softened it. You know, He said, I don't think you're actually arrogant. I, I think you get really excited when you close a deal. And you want other people to be not only excited along with you, but you're hoping to give some of that energy to other people to, you know, jump on the on board the closing train. And he said, you know, sometimes, you know, it's just something that you're going to have to be aware of in your career that that you have to be mindful about where other people are at. You know, if someone's having a hard month, they may have cheered for you the last month when they were having a good month, too. But you're cheering the month that they are having a hard month, may feel like you are rubbing it in their face that they are not having a good month.
0: Rena, when you're coaching, you know, our reps at Sales Loft, do you have sidebar conversations with men or women about these sorts of issues, about how they are perceived by others, customers and fellow coworkers?
1: I do. And I would a lot of the times, whether it's warranted or not, it's something that you need to action on most of the time because that is somebody's perception. And if you feel very strongly about it, that it's just their perception or what they think, you can have that sidebar conversation. But to her point, if a couple of people have brought it up, I think either way to soften it, you can work on those soft skills always. But it, it did bring me up to a follow-up question for Kelly. You got that hard feedback, right? And it's a lot to swallow. How do you determine what steps to take and how do you hold yourself accountable to getting better at that skill set?
2: I mean, generally for me, there's a few things that I do. The first part is don't act on it that day. Other people may be able to, but for me, I know that I have the tendency to take it really personally at first. And if I act on it right away, every bit of feedback that I do receive, I'm gonna get emotional and more and more emotional about. And what I really wanna do when I get that feedback is not be emotional about it. I want to be able to digest it, break it down, to its different parts, figure out what I agree and disagree with and figure out a plan of action to move forward from that. So I don't do anything with it that day. The next thing that I do is I try to get some other perspectives.
0: You know, you came into LexisNexis, you were in the top 10, you were in the top three, and then you were number one, number one, number one. So like, how in the world does somebody do that? What do you think that you do that helps you do that? And then what do you, I, I, I'm, I'm always asking people, what do you not do? Cause I think so much of kind of strategy and effectiveness is both what you do and what you don't do. How do you think about being a, a seller?
2: Probably the biggest thing that I think I do is I focus on process. You know, I played sports my whole life. I've never been innately the best at anything I've done. You know, you've got those salespeople that people say they could sell ice to an Eskimo Or, you know, someone that just was born with a baseball bat in their hand and, you know, they can crush a home run without even trying. I'm not that person. I've never been that person. But I have always been convinced that if you pay attention to what makes people great, you can diagnose what it is they're doing and replicate that at least that success to some degree, to some better degree than you could do on your own. And I think that it really comes down to the small things. You know, you look at the difference between someone that's going to the Olympics and someone that's just playing, you know, high school basketball. They're both going to smoke me on a basketball court. But if you put them up head to head against each other, the Olympic athlete is probably going to be a little bit better. And it's going to be when you break down the game video and you watch the very little things that they do. For me, it kind of goes back to earlier when we were talking about how Bob helped me initially on. We would listen to those sales calls. And he taught me very early on when I say, ask this question like this. I don't mean ask it kind of like this. I mean, ask it in this exact way because each of those words has a purpose and the tone that you ask it in has a purpose. And what we found was that as we would listen to things and they didn't go the way we expected, a lot of times it broke down to, I changed a word or I didn't know what I was trying to accomplish with that change that I made. When I'm asking questions, when I'm positioning a product or, you know, handling an objection, I take my time in giving my answer because I want to be very mindful about why am I saying exactly what I'm saying? Does every single word have a purpose?
0: There's tons of polls for whatever reason circulating on LinkedIn. I think they sort of come in waves and we're in one of those waves right now where there's a ton of polls. And one of the polls I saw earlier, which is what's the hardest part of sales? And it was prospecting, kind of keeping the op alive in the middle or closing. What what for you is the hardest part?
2: It's really that just initial part of the call and that I feel like it should be. The prospecting and your qualification stages should be the most difficult and they should be the things that you spend the most time in and discovery, I guess. I've always heard it kind of as a upside down triangle. So if you think about like the call has three phases, you've got discovery, you've got your sales pitch, and then you've got closing. I'm gonna have to cover each of those phases no matter what I do, right? But I get to choose where I spend the most time. I can spend the most time up at the top in qualification and discovery. I'm gonna spend the same amount of time no matter what in my sales presentation. And then I can spend a little bit of time in closing and objection handling. Or I can spend a little bit of time In discovery and qualification, spend my time in the sales presentation, and then I spend all my time in objection handling and closing. To me, that is the most stressful part of the call because it's when it really matters, right? All the work we put into it really matters. I don't want to be stressed when the part of it that really matters happens. And I think that it's stressful for the customer too. So by flipping that triangle upside down and spending so much more time in discovery, when we are making our recommendations to a client... Closing is the natural outcome because we matched up everything that they told us in discovery with here's what fixes those challenges for you. If you agree, then the natural next step is for us to move forward on this. So I really find I don't even have to handle a lot of objections most of the time because we've been able to answer most of those things that would have become objections as we were presenting the recommendation and the product
0: to them. We've talked a lot about process so far, and we could probably actually spend the whole time going on process. But I'm curious, what other things you, do you think distinguish you know, your selling style from that of people who don't manage to hit President's Club every year?
2: I don't feel like I'm your traditional salesperson. I think when people get on the phone with me, they don't feel like they're talking to a salesperson. And I love that. Some of that comes from the fact that my background was in teaching. And so I look at my role a lot of times as just teaching them about our products more than trying to persuade them. Now, have I spent plenty of time studying, you know, the psychology of persuasion and influence? Absolutely. You know, I play a lot of poker and that kind of stuff falls into my negotiation and reading people and things like that. But at my heart, I am a teacher and I really care about helping people. I try to always keep really what the customer is trying to accomplish and what is best for my customer above what my agenda is and what I want to get out of it. I try to find ways to create win-wins in that. So for instance, like yesterday was close of business for March, right? And I think a lot of times a lot of reps can hurt deals that are in a good position to close because their agenda and their boss's agenda is we need to get this on March, right? And a deal that was basically like the plane was landed can all of a sudden you can break all the trust that you've built and all the, you know, maybe loyalty that may have existed there from the time that you've spent working this deal since, you know, however many months ago, because you really need this sale to land in the first quarter. And so you're throwing all your promotions at them. You're telling them what the risks are, if we don't close it this month, what's going to happen to them if it doesn't close this month. And if your customer doesn't believe you or if they're not in the position to make a decision on it in your timeline, then next month, now you've potentially hurt the relationship and all of those other urgency tools no longer have any teeth to them. So to me, like the trust that I have with my client is the most important thing I need for them to believe me. And I need for them to believe that I have their best interest at heart and that if I tell them something like this promotion literally is going away, if we don't do this this month, it is not happening. I need them to trust me on that. But if I have been using that same kind of tactic multiple times, they're probably not going to believe me on that. So to me, that is really the big thing is I try not to sound like a salesperson. So especially what has been really helpful for me ever since I discovered this technique, and it's probably people listening to this are going to go discovered this is so obvious, but a really pivotal question for me has been asking, what's your timeline to make a decision on this? Assuming that, you know, we show you the right resources and that makes business sense, what's your timeline to make a decision on moving forward with this? and you may tell me I can make a decision this month, or you may tell me I I can make a decision next month, or you'll tell me something down the road in the future. Once I know what that kind of approximate time frame is, I may be able to still move it forward a few weeks. But if you tell me it's six months out, it is unrealistic for me to expect you're going to close this month, right? If you tell me it's next month, I may be able to dig in a little bit closer and figure out So, what changes next month? What has to happen? You know, what's happening next month that puts you in the position to make a decision that you can't now? And sometimes it's just, you know, especially working with attorneys, we've got trial for the next two weeks. When I know that, I know that there is no breaking into a trial schedule. That is all they're doing for two weeks. So, there's nothing I can do, and I just need to accept that. But If I find out that we're just kind of busy, the kids are off school or whatever, we might be able to fit some things in before that. But it's really important to find out first off, what's their timeline and why is that their timeline? So that I can then figure out, can I work them into also having the same kind of time frame that I would like to have? Or do I just need to accept that it is going to be an April deal?
0: Sometimes I would assume prospects are when they don't have the trust yet, they're a little cagey about their timeline. How do you handle that cageyness?
2: So I think it depends on when you ask that question. You know, if you ask that really early in the sales process, there's a lot of kind of stress and mistrust naturally at the beginning of a sales process because we don't have that relationship built up yet, right? So I assume if you ask me that question, you're trying to trap me or trick me. So I may just kind of frame it in a way of, "Hey, listen, I know that this is all really early on, but ideally, you know, if everything goes right and you like what we show you, what's your time frame? When do you want to have these kinds of resources in place?" So instead of moving forward on the deal, I'm going to change it to, "When do you want to have these resources? When do you want to play with the toy?" And I'm going to frame it initially with, "I know that this is really early on." So I've taken that and acknowledged it so that we're both in agreement that I'm asking kind of a a question that we might not have firm answers on yet. Now, if we have gone through discovery, we've gone through the sales presentation, we're now in the closing phase. I already had an idea based on that initial question that you may be able to make a decision on this in the next few weeks or next month. I'm gonna circle back and say again, hey, Jeremy, you thought that you might be able to make a decision on this by next month. I'm not sure if this is realistic for you. You
0: know, we talked a lot about best practices for being a top rep. As you've looked at people basically, you know, flame out of organizations that you have worked with, like reps, all reps, like they know they should be great at process. They know they should have a decent technical proficiency. They know they should be students of the game, whatever it happens to be. They know they need to be empathetic listeners. What's a common pattern you've seen in reps who don't thrive in the organizations that you've worked in?
2: That's a hard one. I mean, there's there's so many reasons that that could be the case, right? Like, were they even a good hire to start out with is a really important question. Do they have interest in what they're doing? If you're not interested in what you're doing, you're just selling widgets, like you're probably not going to have the stamina to push through hard times. And that could be, you know, do you like sales? And then also, do you like your product and your company that you work for? If you like sales, and you have a good product, then, you know, you'd be silly to start over new somewhere else. It's a lot of work to go through someone's new hire training and to build a new list of prospects and to build new internal relationships and you know all of that. That's a lot of work. Um, and I think sometimes people look at it and they maybe do like where they work. They do like the products they have and they forget how hard it is to be new. And they assume it will be easier if they just change this other stuff. They get a new company and then everything will be great. Sales is hard no matter where you go. That part doesn't change. So for me, the biggest thing that has helped me to weather some of those periods where I have gone through you know, a difficult patch and looking at my results, probably like that's easy to say, Kelly, you didn't have difficult patches. But as salespeople, we have really short memories, right? It doesn't take many months of not having the sales you want to have to start feeling like I am the worst at this and I will never be better. The important thing is to keep in perspective. Like you have to remind yourself of the successes that you've had over the years to combat that imposter syndrome. Like that is not true. I am really good at what I do and I'm a I'm a badass. I'm just having a bad month. But the other things I need to remember is that it is really easy to look at other companies and say, Ooh, that's shiny. It's new, it's different. I don't have bad memories with them. So everything about it looks great. But the reality is, unless I am at a company that is really toxic in and of itself, if it's a good company, the new company is probably not really going to be that much shinier once I'm looking at it up close. And so it's probably better to put my head down and do the work and figure out what I need to fix here than to start over new somewhere else.
0: Amen to everything you just said. Well, Kelly, it was such a pleasure having you on. Rena, you, you, you uh, rocked it in, in your first appearance as, as a co-host. Thank you.
1: No, yeah, it was great to be here.
0: And Kelly, if people want to uh, find out about opportunities at LexisNexis to work with you, to work with Bob, what's the best way for them to get in touch with you?
2: Uh, they can find me on LinkedIn, Uh, I've got a profile on there that if they just type Kelly Campbell, LexisNexis, they'll be able to connect with me right there. Be more than happy to connect with people.
0: Wonderful. Again, thanks for, thanks for the chat today.
2: Awesome. Thanks.
0: Hey, salespeople is a production made in partnership with Frequency Media. I'm your host, Jeremy Donovan. This podcast is available on Apple podcasts, Spotify, and wherever podcasts are found. Thanks for listening to the Hey salespeople podcast.